Good afternoon, everyone. If you please stand for the reading of God's word. Our text this afternoon, sorry, I'm still getting used to the afternoon and not morning, is Daniel chapter 7. Get ready, because we'll be standing for a few moments. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side, it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had, a great, it had great iron teeth, it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up from them another one, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up from the roots, and behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, Thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and the wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued, and he came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked. Then, because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, from the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. The four great beasts are four kingdoms, are four kings that shall arise out of the earth, and the saints of the Most High will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying with its teeth of iron and claws of, bro claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet and about ten horns that were on its head, and the other horns that came up 
and before which three of them fell. The horn that had eyes and a mouth and that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down and break in pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and one shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and he shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and he shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom, kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept this matter in my heart. This is the word of the Lord. If you please bow your heads as you uh, take your seats. Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have called us to gather here this afternoon to meet with you. That you have given us your word. We ask that as we study your word, that you pour out your spirit upon us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see what you are telling us in your word. We know that these are gifts of yours, and we ask that you give us these gifts. We ask them not just for us, as if we were the only ones who mattered, but also for our children. That your word would sink into their hearts, that they'd remember knowing and loving you from their youngest days, and that their very imaginations would be shaped by your word. Dear Lord, uh, help me to preach this word as it ought to be preached. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, today we're uh, diving into the second half of Daniel chapter 7. Um, I just want to start off with a little bit of an illustration. From July 14th to September 11th, 1683, men would climb the stairs of St. Stephen's Cathedral in Vienna to fire off artillery in order to call out for help in their increasingly desperate situation, as they hoped a relief army would draw near. Because with each passing day, they grew closer to starvation, and the city took more and more damage that they had to start using furniture, uh, so they had to break down tables and chairs, anything to try to plug the gaps that were created from the opposing army. Finally, on September 11th, one single rocket responded to their calls for help, letting them know that help was near. They had hope. They knew that their struggle wasn't in vain. The following day, they'd see the entire Ottoman army, and a huge army that had amassed outside the, the city of Vienna would be decimated. It would also be the largest cavalry charge in history, with 18,000 horsemen charging down a hill upon the Turkish attackers. Uh, Amy, do you just want to hit the first slide? A charge that looks something like this, as 18,000 horsemen charged down the hill upon the Turkish attackers, and to call what would happen next, a battle would be kind of very loosely of what a battle would actually be. This was simply a, a one-sided slaughter. This was a 
These are the winged hussars that end up raining down the hill, that end up coming to relieve the city of Vienna. If this sounds familiar, that's good, because this is actually the inspiration that Tolkien used behind uh, the Battle of Helm's Deep. Amy, next slide. Which you can see oh so well with the light. Um, the point is that <coughs> with hope we're able to endure the most dire circumstances. That just like the people of Vienna, that they had hoped that a relief army was going to come by, that they were going to be liberated, that there was a chance for them. That hope would come, that an army would come to save them. Similarly, for those of you who uh, really like Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, which I'm sure is a great many of you here, you'll remember that the Battle of Helm's Deep, what ended up kind of giving them hope was when, in the films, when Aragorn remembers that on the third day to look, look to the dawn, because Gandalf was going to come, he was going to help them. Right? The main idea is that hope is able to help us endure. Hope is able to help us stand in the midst of hard circumstances. It's the light at the end of the tunnel that helps us hold on for just that little bit longer, helps us to sustain us just that little bit longer, usually beyond what we ourselves believe we can actually withstand. Which brings us to the big idea of Daniel 7 to 12, which is the hope to endure. In the first six chapters, we saw an example of how to endure, how to live faithfully in the midst of an evil and oppressive empire. We saw wisdom for what does this look like? What are some strategies to help us remain faithful? In Daniel 7 to 12, we're going to see that God's giving us a hope to sustain us. God will, so to speak, peel back the curtain to show us even more of how things look like. That even though things to our own eyes might appear hopeless, God's going to show us, no, 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 there's more going on than what simply meets the eye. God's going to peel back the curtain so that we can see that he is still on his throne. Now, part of this will actually include a genre change. So in Daniel 1 to 6, we saw a chronological autobiography, right? It may have skipped several decades, but things went in a sequential order. And Daniel 7 to 12, we're going to see a genre changed by what's called the apocalyptic genre. This isn't something that we have often today. In fact, the closest thing to it would perhaps be a good satire. Something that's meant to peel back and uh, show how things really are. So with that, let's take a moment and cover what the apocalyptic is and isn't. When we think of the apocalyptic, our mind naturally goes to thinking about the end of the world, right? When we think of that whole kind of genre that's popped up in the last several decades with films like 2012 or uh, World War Z, we usually think there's going to be some type of meteor, some type of zombie apocalypse, some type of crazy pandemic, or some type of flood that's going to come and wipe us all out. But that's not it. The big idea behind the apocalyptic isn't the end of the world. Rather, for those of you who have older Bibles, when you take a look at the last book of the New Testament, the book of Revelation, it's called the revelation, the revealing of Jesus Christ. Rather, the apocalyptic is God peeling back the curtain to show us the reality of the world. So that even though things might look one way to us, God's going to reveal the true nature of the world. He's going to show us the true nature behind things. A great example of this actually comes from 2 Kings chapter 6. When the town of, when the town of Dothan, where Elisha was staying, suddenly gets surrounded in the middle of the night by the Syrian army. This was a situation that for them, everybody was freaking out. Everyone except for one man. And that was the prophet Elijah. And 
his servant comes to him all panicked, like, what are we going to do? Like, we have no chance of escape. The entire Syrian army, you're the one they're looking for. So Elijah ends up taking a moment. He prays and he prays that the Lord would open the eyes of his servant. And when his servant opens eyes, he sees that even though there's the entire Syrian army surrounding the town, there's an even bigger army that's surrounding them. That the hills were all full of, uh, it says, horsemen and chariots of fire were actually surrounding the Syrian army. And what ends up happening next is God then prays that uh, this other army would end up being struck blind, which ends up leading to them being led all the way to Samaria where when they receive their sight, they recognize that they actually don't have a chance. So the point of the apocalyptic, it isn't for what's the end of the world, this isn't some special decoder ring, this isn't some type of a way of uh, how to read the newspaper in just the right way so you can kind of get, uh, get the lowdown on what's going to happen next. You know, what stocks to invest in or those type of things or just where you should hide out in a bunker with lots of canned food. The goal of the apocalyptic is to show what's really going on. Who's really in charge? What's the true nature of the world? So, one thing as we kind of continue on, Daniel chapter 7 to 12, we're also going to see that it's going to get a little bit weird, right? We're going to see some strange beasts. We're going to see some characters we don't normally end up thinking of or seeing. Um, it's going to be strange to our Western ears, but that's okay. Because we're going to follow the Bible and see where it leads us. So just so you all get ready to kind of embrace the strangeness of the Bible. This is kind of the portions that you don't end up hearing about at the popular apologetics conferences or um, in a lot of places, really. We're going to just let the Bible be the Bible and understand what God's trying to tell us. So with that in mind, uh, let's kind of take a moment to rewind a little bit and look back at what do dreams mean. We talked about this a little bit in Daniel chapter 2, but frankly, that was a little while ago. So let's just rewind a bit. So when we think of dreams and visions, we're on, we're post-Freud, we're post-Jung. So for us, when we think of dreams and visions, we think that dreams or visions are a window into the self. We think that for dreams and visions, it's what is my subconscious trying to tell us, right? Like, I had some bad pizza last night, now what's going on internally? What's kind of my own uh, stuff happening? Rather, that's not the way that the ancients saw that. That's not the way that our uh, forefathers saw that. That's not how Daniel envisioned it or those contemporaries. In Daniel's day, they were seen as a gift from God, in Daniel's case, or the gods for the rest of the Babylonians. They were seen as a gift of the divine for guidance or some type of a warning. So for them, dreams wasn't how do I look within myself. Rather, dreams were a way of understanding the world around you and understanding what is it that God or the gods expected? What were you to do next? So with that kind of groundwork laid, let's kind of dive back into our text. So this morning we're actually going to see our text in three separate parts. First, we're going to see the beasts of empire. Then we're going to see the reigning king. And third, we're going to look at the sun's dominion. With the big idea being that even though the nations may act like beasts, God is still sovereign. God is still on his throne. Even though the world might end up looking chaotic. So with that in mind, let's kind of look at the beasts of empire. So our text starts off um, by giving us a, a time and a place, saying that this is in the first year of Belshazzar, the king of Babylon. This 
our passage this morning takes place between Daniel chapter 4 and Daniel chapter 5. And what we learn in Daniel chapter 5 is that Belshazzar doesn't have any respect for Daniel. He doesn't even know who he is by the time uh, the writing on the wall takes place. He has no real way of showing reverence to the only one who's truly able to help him. So this, this dream vision comes at a time when, for Daniel, I'm sure he felt very much left to the side. When he kind of felt that he had given his whole life and now he was just kind of being spit upon. He was just kind of thrown away like rubbish. And our text starts off by then saying that, uh, and Daniel declared, I saw in my visions by night, and behold, four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, in verse 2. Now, what does that mean? Right? We get four winds, we get, some, we get a sea. We, what's going to happen here? Well, the four winds, while there's much speculation and kind of potential nuances that you could do, if you really want to get into it, you can read like reams and reams of paper of everybody trying to like parse out what every different potential means. But the big idea here, the big idea behind this, is, the big takeaway is that the four winds of heaven are actually God's working. That the stirring that it produces is a result of God's actions. So that then when the monsters emerge, they aren't something that simply arises by itself. They don't just come from a chaotic mass. They don't just come out of nowhere. Rather, that they are part of God's creation and something that he still has control over. So the four winds of heaven is a way of saying that God's behind us. That this great stirring, God is still in charge of us. Now the sea is meant to signify the chaotic nature of empires struggling against each other, jostling for superiority. Right? It's kind of similar to what we end up reading in history books, or what we end up reading in the news, where constantly we see one group of people trying to get a leg up and over over somebody else, where someone's always constantly pressing for an advantage. It's saying that in the midst of the chaos of current events, both present and current, in the midst of empires struggling back and forth, of tribes fighting against one another, that there will arise four significant beasts. Which brings us to the monsters themselves. Now, for those of you who are parents of young children, if as you're reading, if as we're reading the descriptions, you hope that your kids kind of zoned out a little bit, you kind of hope that maybe just this part they kind of weren't paying as close of attention to, uh, just so they don't have any crazy dreams of their own. Well, well done. You've actually grasped what the whole point of this is. The the idea is that these monsters are meant to be scary. That if you're worried about your kids kind of having uh, their own dreams with these monsters kind of arising out of the water and scaring them, that's the point. That these monsters are meant to be scary. Now for those of you who are artistically gifted or visual thinkers, uh, you can have an advantage over those of us who are more on the analytical side. For those of us who see things, uh, trying to parse out all the nuance, trying to get all the different angles you'll naturally kind of get a little bit better at the apocalyptic genre. You'll understand what's the big vision, what's going on, what is meant to be signified by this. You'll see the forest, so to speak, rather than someone like me who wants to analyze the bark of every single tree. Now, when we look at the beasts, we'll, we'll kind of take a look at each one of them and kind of understand which one of these there are. Because it does matter which beast is which. So, when we look at the beast, the first beast is Babylon. Now, the mind of a man that's referenced could very well be a reference to uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who had a new life given to him after he was humbled in Daniel chapter 4. 
I think uh, this actually is a reference to Nebuchadnezzar as Jeremiah compares Nebuchadnezzar with both a lion and with an eagle. Now, Amy, could you just switch? I think it's two slides forward. I'll have to find some way of getting a better contrast on that. But that gives an idea of how the Babylonians saw themselves. Right? So when we're saying this is uh, as the first beast uh, was like a lion which had eagle's wings, from the image, that's actually some uh, Babylonian statues, which has the body of a lion, uh, wings like an eagle. It's, it's a very clear way of saying, hey, that first beast, this is where we're starting. This is the empire that you're in. So the first beast is very easy to understand. This is uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire that would follow after him. Now when we get to the second beast, this is the Medo-Persian empire. This is the bear, which was a strong devouring animal. This was a beast that had great strength, and from what we know of the Persian Empire, they were actually very strong. This was an empire that ended up having, reaching all the way from India on one border, all the way to Greece on the other. This was an empire that um, Herodotus will tell us many things, just as far as the strength that it had, its ability to, to conquer, its ability that once it had conquered, to then control the area that it had. This wasn't an empire that once they have it, it's kind of, they sort of have it, there's a flag flying, but they don't really have any day-to-day -day control. This was an empire that was very smooth in its operation. Um, the description that's given of the second beast, it's like a bear raised on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told to rise, devour much flesh. This is an indicator, this is God foretelling just some of the savagery that the Persians would have. This is a foretelling of just what this Persian empire would be like. It would be strong, it will conquer, and when it's conquered you, it will devour your culture. You will be a Persian. You will have semblances of your original culture, but you will have, make no mistake under whose grasp you are. And then when we get to the, uh, the third animal, which is a leopard with wings of a bird on its back, and the beast had four heads and a dominion was given to it. Now we get to the third beast. This represents the Greek Empire, the Hellenistic Age. The leopard, uh, the leopard and the bird are representative for how quickly it would conquer. This is meant uh, as a foreshadowing for how fast this empire would pop on the scene and cover great territory. Now for those of you who are familiar with the life of Alexander the Great, that's not really that shocking. What's, one of the things that's truly remarkable, remarkable about Alexander the Great was how quickly he popped up on the scene. And then how quickly he expanded his dominion all the way from Macedonia, through Greece, through the Persian Empire, reaching all the way to India. All within a very short lifespan. The fact that, that somebody could march that quickly from point A to point B truly is something astonishing and remarkable. Now, for those of you who've read any type of biography or know anything about Alexander the Great, it's also interesting that our text will tell us that it had four heads, meaning it's going to spread into four different directions, but the dominion was given to it. This is to say that even Alexander the Great, someone who even we to this day, when we reference him, reference him, him, reference him as someone who was great because of his accomplishments, that even these great accomplishments, that his dominion, his conquest, was given to him. This wasn't something that he simply grasped by himself. Rather, this was something that was given to him from God above.
Then when we get to the, the fourth beast, this represents Rome. No matter what, some of the different commentators and academics will kind of try to argue in different commentaries. This very clearly is Rome. The teeth, the strength, the stamping is all a reference to Rome's military might. When you uh, take a look at the historical record, the way that God here is foretelling what Rome would be like, it's uncanny how close it is. Uh, Rome was an empire that marched through whatever territory it wanted. Rome was an empire that, with great strength of iron, subdued practically everything that was before it. It was, in many ways, the greatest empire that history has ever known. It was an empire that stretched all the way from England, far east, it ended up being into Africa, into Europe. It truly was the greatest empire in all of history. Now when we get to the horns, these represent a succession of Caesars. And that the beast would make war against the saints and have an appearance of winning as the text goes on where it talks about the appearance, talks about the interpretation. It means that this last beast would be the greatest beast, so to speak. That this last beast would end up very much trying to take on God, would end up trying to take on the saints of God. And for a time, it would appear to be winning. Now, if you have a better description of that than Rome, I would love to hear it, but uh, there really isn't one. Rome itself declared war against the church. Rome itself, with the succession of Roman emperors, tried to show how great they were by trying to stamp out the Christians. If you'd like to kind of have a uh, historical record to kind of look into what this was like, you can check out Fox's Book of Martyrs or Eusebius's Ecclesiastical History to understand just how dire the situation with Rome was, how bad things got. But the point of this, this vision isn't the monsters. The reason why the, the monsters, though, in this passage look so scary is because they are. The monsters, the beasts of empire, they're all meant to be terrifying because they are real and they are dangerous. But what's most important for us is that this dream here is going to be in contrast. That just as the monsters are scary, just as it can seem overwhelming all that surrounds us, it's important that we remember that the beasts, they aren't ultimate. That there's a greater power, there's a greater authority above them. Because after all, there is a reigning king, and that he will come to judge the beasts. He will come to judge the empire, empires. Which brings us to the reigning king. Now we look at the description that is said here. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, and his wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. Now, the majesty that is given to the vision of God, of the, the Ancient of Days, this is actually borrowing from language and from Ezekiel. This is meant, once again, to show us that just as the monsters are scary, just as the empires are oppressive, so similar, it shows that God is greater than, God is greater and above all the empires. That similarly, as the empires can seem oppressive, so God is greater and mightier than them. Once again, this is boring language from Ezekiel. 
that even though the nations may rage like beasts, that there's an ultimate judge above them. That as it says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the body and soul in hell. Now the idea of this, this courtly scene, it's when it says here that the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. That these monsters, they seem big to us, he's higher. That to him, it looks more like ants look to us. That just as when we go by, you know, the spider looks terrifying to the fly. That when we look at different animals, how they can be terrifying, intimidating to one another, rather to us, an insect is a small little bug. We can just simply squash it with our fist, or we can just step on it. Similarly, the ancient days, God who sits enthroned above, God who sits in judgment above, so small do these empires look, so petty do these beasts look. But the big idea here is that the beasts of the world are responsible and they will answer for those, for the things that they have done. So for those of us who feel our own frustration at our own government, for those of us who look around at the world today and go, what is happening? What on earth is going on here? Whether it be everything from our government seemingly being able to get away with more and more crazy things, more and more abuses of power, or we look at what's happening in other parts of the world, we look at abuses against humanity, we look at war crimes taking place in other parts of the world. Similarly, this passage here is meant to give us the same encouragement today as it gave to Daniel. That even though petty warlords, prime ministers, presidents, Caesars, they may think that they have power and position, but they sit underneath a sovereign God. They sit underneath a God who looks at them the same way that we would look at an ant or a spider. The same way that we can simply reach out and crush them, so similarly, they will have to give an answer to the one who is above them. Because as our text continues, I looked then because the sound of of great words and the horn was speaking as I looked the beast was killed the idea here is not how scary the beasts are but how great our God is how much greater he is than the empires how much power and authority he truly has how he is sovereign even though the nations may rage now this brings us next to the son of man as Dan continues on in his uh, recounting his dream, his vision. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. And all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, for those of you who are quite familiar with your Bibles, you'll recognize that the Son of Man language is something we see quite a bit actually in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, for example, Ezekiel was referenced as the Son of Man. There are other prophets who are called Son of Man. This is a way of saying a human being. But as our text says, then came one like a Son of Man. And what happens next? One who looks like a human will ascend, because this, he will 
uh, with the clouds. He came like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days. So he went from earth, ascended, and comes to the Father, comes to God. Now, who is this? Right? We know that this isn't uh, someone from the Old Testament. We know this isn't just an ordinary human being. And I think uh, the best answer for who this is actually comes once again from Matthew's Gospel. Um, Matthew 26. This is from Jesus' trial. When the high priest asked, um, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God? And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. What happens next? The high priest recognizes what has just been said. Jesus is saying that the Son of Man, a reference back to Daniel, which actually was Jesus' favorite way of referring to himself as the Son of Man. He's saying, I'm that person. So the high priest then tears his robes and he said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard this blasphemy. So what we can see from Jesus' life, from Jesus' own testimony and the response isn't just that Jesus is calling himself a human being. Rather, he's saying, of Daniel 7, of this son of man, this is me, this is who I am. He's saying that you will see him ascended, which is something that we do happen to see in the Gospels. We see Jesus at the ascension going up to the Father, and he uh, presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now this sounds very similar as a precursor, something that would end up making a lot of sense, of Matthew 28, of the Great Commission, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore go, or go therefore, make disciples of all nations. This is saying who the Son of Man is. This is saying that this is Jesus. This is God come in human form, like a son of man. That he will then ascend to the Father, as we see in the Gospels, that Jesus comes to the right hand of the Father, that Jesus is now in that position. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. This is the kingdom of God, that all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. That's the Gospel moving forward. That's the kingdom of God working its way out in history. This is exactly as Jesus, for example, talks about the kingdom, how it's like a little lump of leaven that works its way through the, through the whole lump. Leaven being the kingdom of God, the gospel, the church moving forward, working its way through the whole lump, all of humanity, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is something that we see in the book of Revelation when it says that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue will worship the Father, will worship God. So that is who this Son of Man is. That is who this person is. And when we look as far as what direction is he going, this is kind of a point that really does matter. For those of you who have friends or family who are more on the dispensational stream, they look, hey look, he's coming back. This is a reference to Jesus' second coming. We're about to say he is going to the Father. That he is ascending. That the kingdom has already been given to him. That what we are to expect is the kingdom moving forward in history. Not at some point, you know, like the, 80, like the 82nd Airborne kind of coming down from heaven, that the kingdom doesn't just drop down. Rather, the kingdom moves forward organically as the church moves forward. 
So the main point of our chapter isn't the beast. The main point is that God is going to judge the beast. That the empires of this world, that even though they think they might have a leg up, that even though they think it is their day, that even though they think they can do whatever they will, that's not the case. That their end will come. Now, our natural inclination is to think that these kingdoms are just these kingdoms, right? That once we get past Rome, everything's going to be smooth sailing. But passages like, like this, passages like Psalm 2, 1 Corinthians 15, we get the impression that these beasts have been destroyed, but there are more beasts who will kind of come up. That there are more beasts in history for the church to triumph over, for the sun to slay. Beasts, for example, like the Soviet bear, the Chinese dragon of today. That this passage is an encouragement for us just as much as it was for them. That even though things might look dire, even though things look like we might not be winning in our time and place in Canada in 2023, that it seems like those in positions of power, that they're determined to pursue their own schemes of folly, to pursue wickedness. Now the point of this text is that the sun reigns. That he has dominion. That he has kingdoms. And that all nations, tribes, and tongues will worship him. So therefore, when we look at a passage like Matthew 28, we can see that we are commanded to go. Why? Because he already has the authority. He is seated at the right hand of the Father. This is far more akin to, uh, if you guys are familiar with the World War II, he was a uh, Japanese soldier who got cut off. He didn't realize that the war had ended already. So he ended up kind of doing his little guerrilla jungle warfare for a significant amount of time after the war was over. That just like that soldier kind of carried on his little mission thinking that uh, his empire was still behind him, not realizing that the war was over. Similarly for the empires of today, the war is over. Christ is won. Christ is already seated. Christ already has the authority. So therefore now for us as Christians, it's not that we have the battle to fight. We walk in the fact that God already has won. The victory already has been won. We are to go because of the Christ is seated at the right hand of the, throne, of the Father. For us, it's far more like we're telling people, you know what, the battle's already over? Just come alongside of them. Just stop your raging and your fussing. Just come along. Because as it says in Psalm 2, why do the nations rage? The one who sits in heaven's already lies. Or 1 Corinthians 15, when it mentions that Christ must rule and reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. There's not a battle that takes place anymore. Christ has already won. The beasts have been defeated. Now, for those of us who are uh, parents who have little ones, or for all Christians, I think passages like this should also help to form our imaginations. For us, many times over, we can kind of look at, the, we can pick up a newspaper, we can uh, open up social media, look at our timelines, and things look very bleak, look very dire. It looks like, one more abuse of power is happening by the government. One more war crime has been committed. One more bad piece of legislation is passed. Rather, if we let those things determine our view of the world, 
determine our imagination. Things will look bleak for us. Then we'll be very prone to hopelessness. But rather, if passages like this form our imagination, particularly from a young age, then we see that even though things might not be looking great for us in this moment right now, that there is a greater hope. We can kind of use the, the revealing that God has given us, the tearing back the curtain to see what the true nature of power, what the true nature of the world is, to give us hope for the day, to give us hope for tomorrow. So for parents, don't be afraid to, uh, to let your children explore the Bible, including all those parts that, frankly, we wouldn't necessarily read out in public, right? Passages like this, passages like um, people being thrown into fiery furnaces, like Daniel chapter 3, where they end up escaping. Let the Bible, let it shape your imagination. Let it form how you see the world around you. So, in conclusion, where the rubber hits the road for us, are we living our lives as if we're trying to appease the beasts of this world, the empires that are going on around us, those things that look really scary for us here and now, those things that cause us to wonder, what does my resistance matter? What does my faithfulness, what does it count for? Or are we living in light of the real judge? Now, I just want to close with the example of Samuel Rutherford. He was a 17th century Scottish pastor and theologian. He was one of the Westminster divines. He uh, wrote many wonderful texts on many different subjects, everything from uh, government with Lex Rex to some of his pastoral meditations, which are truly edifying. He was a, he was a man who was no stranger to suffering and persecution. As a young man, he was exiled by the church authorities from his beloved parish at Anworth in southern Scotland for writing a defense of the doctrines of grace over and against the uh, Catholicism. As an old man, when the monarchy was reinstated under Charles II, he was charged with high treason for his book, which argued that even monarchs were subject to the law, that law was the law of God. That law was saying that the king isn't above the law. That book, if anyone's wondering, is Lex Rex. It's a fantastic read. I'd encourage everyone to read it. But as he was an old man, a summons came for him to be brought up on charges of treason. However, he was already on his deathbed. He knew he had a very short time left. So he responded. Tell him I have got a summons already before a superior judge and judiciary, and I behove to answer my first summons. What he's saying is that even though the king might want to see me, even though he might want to have a kangaroo trial just to off me, I've already got a different summons. I'm going to pay attention to that one first. There's a higher judge who I must answer to. So for all of us, how are we living our lives? Are we living our lives in light of what are all the expectations of the empires and the beasts of this world? Or are they in light of the ultimate judge who we will stand before? Are we living as if the sun is on his throne? Are we living as if he already has all authority, as if his kingdom is moving forward? With that, if you please bow your heads as we close in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this passage to encourage us.
Help us to meditate on this passage as we go about our weeks. Help it to shape our imaginations. Dear Lord, let this not be a passage that we read once or move on, or we read and we think we know this passage. Let its strangeness and peculiarity, let, us, let it infect our imagination. Let it shape the way we see ourselves and we see the world around us. Lord, we ask that you would once again crush your enemies with your covenant kindness by granting them repentance as you did with Nebuchadnezzar. That those who were once your enemies might become your people. That those deserving damnation might join us at your table. We pray this not just for those in our community around us, but also for the leaders that you've placed over us. Dear Lord, that they would take the words of Psalm 2 seriously. That they would recognize that they are not the authority that they think they are. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.